Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm once again joined by Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Before we get to the show, anything interesting you guys have seen recently that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, so um, I have a, two young kids, actually, and, and so they watch a lot of PBS Kids, and there's a new show that I wanted to actually plug called Eleanor Wonders Why. Uh, so this is a kid show created by Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson. Uh, they also have a fantastic podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. So uh, if our asking why wasn't enough, they try to explain the whole damn universe. Um, that would be helpful, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, as you can imagine by the title, it's it's just about uh, a young rabbit that goes around asking you know, why do uh, birds have feathers? Why do ants, you know, walk in a line? All the kinds of questions that um, that in some ways we have stopped asking, but that kids fortunately continue to ask. So if you are uh, a, a child uh, at heart or have children, uh, it's probably a good show for you. I was going to say, like, that sounds fantastic. Does that make me a child? <laughs> Well, Avi, you've got young kids, so you watch children's shows even if you didn't want to. Yeah, I, I, I definitely like have. I'm noting this down for. Um, yeah, doing it for the kids. For educational it's for the resources. Kids. Yeah. Well, it has to work on multiple yeah. levels, right? Isn't that how, how all the Disney movies work? Like, there's jokes for the parents, jokes for the kids. So. Yeah, I think this is all jokes for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's PBS. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Today on the podcast, I'm super excited. We're exploring one of my favorite components of the blood, the platelet. We are going to dive into why renal failure leads to platelet dysfunction, or what I knew previous prior to this as uremic platelet disorder. And this is going to require us, unfortunately, to talk about the urea cycle, but Tony has promised me that it will be worth it. So Tony, before we get into uremia and platelet dysfunction, let's start with a little bit of history. How long have we known that there was a connection between kidney dysfunction and bleeding? Uh, An amazingly long time, actually. Um, So the association was recognized at least as early as 1764 by uh, Giovanni Battista Morgani. Uh, And then in 1836, Richard Bright, uh, who has Bright's disease named after him, uh, observed that purpura frequently occur in patients who are uremic. Uh, And then in the subsequent 70 years, there were so many additional observations about the connection uh, between uremia and bleeding that David Reisman was able to write a review of them uh, that is pretty lengthy in 1907. And that review, I I love the title, so I'm going to read it for everyone. It's uh, Hemorrhages in the Course of Bright's Disease with a Special Reference to the Occurrence of a Hemorrhagic Diathesis of Nephritic Origin. Titles were much better back in 1907. That was very descriptive. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Let me tell you exactly what this article is about. So, Tony, is there is there evidence beyond? It sounds like there's like there's been a robust, even hundreds of years of clinical observation. But is there any evidence beyond that that this is actually a thing? There is. I, you know, when I was researching this, I didn't go after data showing that connection, but I did find a few studies. Uh, One was in heart failure patients, and it showed that CKD was associated with an increased risk of bleeding. And the hazard ratios were between uh, 1.6 and 2.9, depending on whether or not the patient was getting renal replacement therapy. So, so, you know, Hazard ratio 1.6, 2.9 is high, but it's not, you know, otherworldly. You know, this is not uh, hemophilia, for example. 
Okay, so I'm always trying to find a reason to talk about platelet dysfunction, but are we sure that this is the platelets and not some other part of the coagulation cascade? Uh, yes, I, I think so. Um, and so the, the, there's a couple different forms of evidence for this. So first, uh, patients with uremic bleeding typically have normal platelet counts, and they have normal APTTs and INRs. Uh, so it's not a quantitative platelet problem, and it doesn't appear to be a coagulation problem, at least based on APTT and INR. Um, okay, so you've, you've thought about this. This isn't just burr of the moment. No. Uh. <laughs> um, but uremic bleeding is correlated with prolongation of the skin bleeding time, you know, where you make a nick in the skin and see how long it takes someone to, um, to stop bleeding. And that's the classic test that's been used to assess plated function. I, I don't think we use it particularly often now, uh, but it is historically a test of platelet function. So it appears that the abnormality in uremia uh, is more of a qualitative platelet problem and not a coagulation problem, not a quantitative platelet problem. Okay, so a primary hemostasis problem. Tony, thank you for setting up me up for this. Should we go over primary hemostasis? <laughs> yes, yes, Hannah, I think we should. And I think you should because you love it so much. Like we have not been planning this for several months. <laughs> This is the whole reason we're doing a podcast at all is just so you could talk about primary hemostasis. It's been a long game. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so when I think about hemostasis, I think about primary and secondary hemostasis. We're going to – primary hemostasis is essentially the platelet clot forming and then secondary hemostasis is, is stabilizing it. In order to make a platelet clot, first we have to get a platelet to stick to the wall and then we have to get other platelets to join it. So describing these into two parts, the first is platelet adhesion. And the way that that happens is that we somehow break the endothelial wall and we expose the collagen that's sort of sitting underneath. Von Willebrand factor that's circulating binds to that collagen. And then the platelet glycoprotein 1B or GP1B binds to that Von Willebrand factor. So that's adhesion. Then we have to aggregate, get more platelets, which is where GP2B3A cross-links the platelets, and also binds the von Willebrand factor. So, and that actually kind of takes me back to episode two, where we also talked a lot about this stuff. And if I recall, we discussed that endothelial injury leads to exposure of tissue factor, and that's expressed in the fibroblasts and the blood vessels and stuff. And both, you know, the primary and secondary hemostasis, this seems like they're really driven by the endothelium. And that's kind of meant to protect us from you know, from bleeding everywhere in our body that, you know, micro bleeding doesn't become major bleeding. Right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The endothelial injury really um, starts the cascade, not just the coagulation cascade, but also starts the cascade of that first um, primary hemostasis with the platelet plug. You know, it's really just like a sentinel event. So, so going back to uremia, you can imagine that multiple aspects of primary hemostasis may lead to platelet dysfunction. Um, so uremia might reduce adhesion, which is, again, that initial attachment of the platelet to the collagen that's been exposed. It might affect aggregation, which is, again, the platelet-platelet clumping. But uremia may also affect other things, like secretion of platelet factors, uh, or it may lead to uh, just a problem storing those factors, right? Because remember, platelets have things like ADP and serotonin and thromboxin A2, and all these are important uh, for the platelets to be able to do their job. But for today, for this episode, we're just going to focus on the adhesion and the aggregation problems. 
And to start, um, I want to mention one study that took blood from patients with end-stage renal disease just before dialysis. And it found reductions in platelet adhesion aggregation, again, right before dialysis, when, you know, in theory, uh, if there's a, a toxin that's there, it's going to be at its highest level. And then when normal platelets were placed in this uremic plasma, their f- function also suffered. They essentially became uremic platelets. And so the conclusion was that there's some toxin in the plasma that must be poisoning the platelets. Because you can, it, it appears to be poisoning the platelets of the patients who are about to get hemodialysis, but it also is transferable when you take that plasma and give it to a normal platelet, it seems to, to poison them as well. So the issue seems to be something floating around in the plasma. And so that study, they drew the blood before the dialysis session clearly for a reason, suggesting that maybe dialysis is doing something to the blood to reduce platelet dysfunction or make the platelets work better by if they're, if there's dialyzing off of a, of some kind of toxin. So does that mean that dialysis fixes uremic platelets, Tony? You know, I I don't know that this is a hundred percent settled. Um, so that study that I that I was referencing, um, I, I don't believe they tested the, the platelet function post-dialysis. But there are some studies that have done that, have, that have looked at the change in platelet function pre- and post-dialysis, and, sh- and they do show at least a partial reversal of the qualitative platelet problem. But not all studies agree. I'll tell you that the overall sense I get is that dialysis probably does do something and if you look at um, you know guidelines and you know point of care references like up to date, they do mention dialysis as a potential th- therapy for uremic bleeding. Uh, so uh, I guess the short answer to your question is we don't know for sure, but probably the preponderance of evidence suggests there is some benefit to dialysis. So going back to that, we said a dialyzable toxin, and I was always under the impression, or rather, under the impression that. It was uremia, right? There's the BUN. Um, am I wrong on that? Is it, like, what is the dialyzable toxin? I mean, it's called uremia. So, like, that's what I always assumed too. Is that urea was the problem here? Similar to the dialysis issue, there's some conflicting data, but I think the consensus is stronger here that urea that urea is not the toxin. Um, so, for example, one study was published in 1970, and that study added urea to normal platelets, right? So not just plasma, right, but specifically tons of urea. Uh, and those platelets continued to function just fine. Uh, and there's also this fascinating condition that I hadn't previously heard of called familial azotemia. And that's characterized by super high uh, plasma urea levels, but totally normal kidney function. And these patients don't experience uremic symptoms, and they don't have platelet dysfunction. So I don't think urea is the problem. I don't think urea is the toxin. So, but if it isn't urea, then what is it? Right. So it's got to be something else, right? It must be something. Um, Yeah. So, um, and it's not creatinine, uh, you know, another thing that we obviously um, closely monitor in these patients, and that increases. So the leading candidate is guanadinosuccinic acid, uh, or GSA. So that study that I just mentioned from 1970 that added urea and didn't find any problem with platelets after that, did find that if you add GSA to normal platelets, they became severely dysfunctional. So that is some of the early evidence that GSA may be the problem. 
Speaking for myself, I had not previously heard of GSA, um, and I imagine I'm not alone in that. So what do we need to know about this molecule? All right, so so this is where we're going to have to talk a little bit about the urea cycle. Um, And we'll have to talk uh, more generally about, you know, why is urea formed and, you know, why does it go up in renal failure? Um, And I'll tell you, there's a little bit of a clue that urea isn't the toxin uh, based on the fact that our body specifically makes it because it's relatively non-toxic, right? So remember that proteins are metabolized to amino acids, which are then further metabolized to ammonia. And ammonia is very toxic. So we have to deal with this. And the way our body deals with ammonia is by the urea cycle. It converts this highly toxic ammonia to a far less toxic molecule, urea. And the thing to know is that the final step in the process of conversion, uh, or the final step in, in the urea cycle, is the conversion of L-arginine to urea. All right, so we start with protein. That gets metabolized down to ammonia. Ammonia is bad, so we're going to funnel it into the urea cycle. And the urea cycle's last step is L-arginine to urea. And then the urea is eventually excreted in the urine. In renal failure, uh, because the renal function is decreased, urea accumulates in the blood. And as a result, the enzymes that would typically convert ammonia to urea are downregulated. Because we, you know, the body already has so much urea, it's like, all right, slow the brakes here a little bit. Mm. And as an alternative pathway to deal with the toxic ammonia, L-arginine is instead to convert it to GSA. And so GSA levels rise, and it's definitely the case that GSA levels are elevated in renal failure. And it's you know, one way to think about it is GSA is just another way of handling ammonia. Uh, when urea levels are high, it fi- we find another way and we just have that L-arginine convert to GSA instead of uh, urea. Okay, so chronic sort of activation of the urea cycle, um, chronic high-dose urea causes us to essentially shunt more of the urea into this GSA pathway. Yeah, it's what? really shunting the, uh, the ammonia uh, instead er, of creating yes. urea, it shunts it into the creation of GSA, that's right. Got it. So chronic activation of this cycle, chronic high levels of urea cause us to essentially shunt um, more of the ammonia into this GSA pathway. That's right. So what does the GSA do? Right. So if we're calling it the toxin, right, it's got to be doing something other than just like sitting around, right? Um, So I mentioned that instead of creating urea, patients with CKD create GSA from L-arginine, right? That last step. So you might imagine that GSA and L-arginine have similar structures, right? They're based on the fact that one is converted to the other. And as a result of that, you might expect that GSA could be a precursor to molecules for which L-arginine is a precursor. And a classic thing that L-arginine becomes is nitric oxide. And we all know that nitric oxide is a vasodilator. In fact, you know, going back to the initial endothelial injury that we were talking about up front... That endothelial injury, one thing that it does is it reduces the amount of nitric oxide and and leads to vasoconstriction, right? So there's a lot of vasodilatory and vasoconstrictive um, properties, you know, when you have a lot or a little of nitric oxide. But the other thing that nitric oxide does that I had not ever heard of until I read about this is that nitric oxide also directly reduces platelet adhesion to the endothelium and it directly uh, reduces platelet aggregation. 
So it doesn't just affect, you know, this like vasoconstriction, vasodilation part of hemostasis. It also directly and negatively affects platelets. So we try to put it all together. Uh, in uremia, uh, urea accumulates. And in the setting of the elevated urea levels, some of that ammonia is converted to GSA. The GSA then accumulates, and because it's similar to L-arginine, some of it can be converted to nitric oxide. The NO causes vasodilation and causes uremic platelets. And vasodilation is bad for clotting, and obviously uremic platelets are bad for clotting. So yeah, as I've thought about this a little bit more, you know, it might be more accurate to say that the nitric oxide is the major player and, and in some ways the toxin and not the GSA. But the GSA, I think, is the sort of the earlier thing that's happening. So it's almost like a, like a marker, I guess, of kind of, of, what's, of what's happening. Yeah, I think so. And, and um, it's the dialyzable thing because uh, it's it definitely is removed by a dialysis. Um, and but we you know we don't measure for it. Like we've never tested a GSA test. So I just don't know that we have other good markers for this toxin. Like we don't check nitric oxide levels, for example. Yeah, I feel like we so often just talk about like, oh, all of the things that are reduced after dialysis and sort of hand wave about what all of them are. So it's really cool to actually identify one of them. Right. Well, we know uh, urea know is, working. but urea is not yeah. the problem here. It's just, yeah. a, it's you know, it's a nice marker of renal function, but it, it's not a marker of, of toxicity. Oh, sorry, it's not a cause of toxicity. Mm. So is there ever, you know, taking this back to the nitric oxide question, um, which it sounds like is is maybe the like you said the mediator of this platelet dysfunction. Is there evidence that nitric oxide levels are elevated in uremia? Yeah. Th- yes. The, the short answer is there's definitely studies, um, multiple studies showing um, elevated levels. And Avi, I think you even um, you know I, I post on this topic uh, a, a tutorial uh, a ways back, and uh, after I posted it, you you made an interesting observation and and shared a study that you found um, with how this connection between nitric oxide and uremic bleeding might help explain why DDAVP works. Do you want to share a little bit about what you found on that? Yeah. Th- so that that's that was the question that had come up for me and working in the ICU. We see a lot of uremic bleeding, per se, or patients that are bleeding who have underlying end-stage renal disease, and we try to minimize that, and we give them DDAVP. And so I was wondering if there is, if, if assuming that's effective, is there a way to tie this together? And did a little bit of searching and came across a, a really interesting study from 2009 that basically looked at the effects of nitric oxide on platelet binding to von Willebrand factor, or basically like platelets adhering to each other as as kind of aided by von Willebrand factor. And they found that the nitric oxide actually inhibited that interaction. And so, you know, this made me wonder, and you know, that is it that giving the the DDAVP and, you know, which is thought to upregulate von Willebrand factor, kind of overwhelming that nitric oxide inhibition by presenting more von Willebrand factor that way, which I thought was, a you know, an interesting way to potentially tie it together. And and that's not something I had seen uh, before you posted it. So uh, I thought that really was a nice way of kind of tying in that, um, the observation and, and, and the reality that DDAVP does help in these situations. So there's a, a few other interesting uh, connections I'll mention. Uh, so one is that you know, estrogen is a, is a quite effective treatment for uremic bleeding, and the proposed mechanism there is 
also related to nitric oxide, uh, specifically uh, estrogen-mediated reductions in nitric oxide. So it really seems to come back to uh, NO uh, over and over and over again. And then for GSA, uh, there is some suggestion that it may even um, play a role in the neurotoxicity seen uh, in patients with uremia, though I I didn't explore that um, more fully. But it's an interesting way of thinking, you know, maybe there's more to GSA than just the uremic platelet bit. That's so interesting. Yeah, all of this sort of the discussion of arginine reminded me of a patient I once saw with mitochondrial encephalopathy, uh, MELAS, lactic acidosis and seizure or seizure like stroke like episodes, just a acronym that rolls off the tongue. (laughs) But sort of so I mean, it's super interesting. It's actually an arginine processing um, problem. And so um, what happens is it, they're called stroke-like episodes because they're not in a geographic re- or a vascular territory of the brain, um, but are instead mediated by regional lack of nitric oxide. And so you give high-dose arginine um, to essentially overcome that. And it's sort of interesting. Um, this this patient that I saw had presented with like sort of an encephalopathic. Um, so is the idea that without the stroke-like episode. Without the nitric oxide, they, they vasoconstrict in sort of myriad parts of the brain leading to like microstrokes or something or? Right, exactly. And so it's, it doesn't like match a, a macrovascular territory. And that's why you sort of see almost pleiotropic uh, neurological issues. That's so cool. That's really fascinating. But I mean, it's amazing that we're able to like give arginine and sort of address the problem. So Tony... Um, I have learned so much, and I feel like I really squashed a, a common misconception of mine. Can you give us what your take-home points were? Absolutely. Um, so one is that uh, guanidinosuccinic acid, or GSA, accumulates in renal failure. And increased GSA levels lead to increased nitric, oxi- uh, nitric oxide levels. So uh, you know, either GSA or nitric oxide or the toxin, like take your pick as to which you want to um, uh, think about as, as being the quote-unquote uremic toxin. Um, so that's one and two. Uh, three, in addition to being a vasodilator, uh, nitric oxide has multiple antiplatelet effects. It affects platelet aggregation. It affects uh, platelet adhesion. So, you know, number four, in short, um, it's reasonable to think about um, GSA as a uremic toxin alongside NO, and that these are what lead to the uremic platelets uh, that we see in patients who have um, renal failure. All right. So that wraps up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks again for joining us. And if you have an interesting tutorial, online meta teaching point, or anything you think that we should know about, tag us on Twitter. For now, I'm Hannah Abrams. And I'm Tony Brew. And I'm Avi Cooper. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at at CuriousClinPod. You can also join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have the show notes for each episode delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to the episode. For more information, please visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been the Curious Clinicians. Bye.